Chapter Eight of the Fairy of the Snows by Francis J. Finn, S.J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Eight, Introducing Francis Morrow in a Novel Christmas Letter. Sister Dorothy paid me a visit that afternoon. Did you hear what happened at the Morrows last night? She asked. What was it, Sister? Anything unusual? Two ruffians one of them a giant in size, called on Mr. Morrow and got him to come outside his rooms. When they got him out, they seized him and carried him to a water faucet and kept him there till he was nearly drowned. They would have killed him, Alice tells me, if the neighbors hadn't come out with sticks and brooms and driven them away. What could have been their object? I asked. Perhaps they wanted to rob him? No, they didn't do anything to show they were thieves. Possibly, I continued, it was a visit of charity. Charity, exclaimed the good sister, that's about the last thing I could imagine. Michael had meanwhile hidden his face behind a large geography. You see, Michael, I said as the astonished sister withdrew, the system of charity you and your bosom friend have inaugurated is such a departure that people, instead of taking you for philanthropists, imagine you to be a pair of cutthroats. Didn't the little girls recognize you and Jerry? I hope not. We were out in the dark, and didn't fairly get into their room. And when Mrs. Morrow came running down and screamed, we both lit out before she could see us well. The lamp was smoky, and didn't give much light. I say, Father, I hope you won't tell anybody what me and Jerry did last night. We might get pinched. I promised Michael to keep it a dead secret. To this day the Morrows do not guess the identity of the two philanthropists, who, in their excess of brotherly love, held the head of Mr. Morrow for some five minutes or more under a water faucet. As a result of Jerry's philanthropy, for two months and some weeks, Mr. Morrow was a changed man. He assured his wife that he was done with liquor forever. He got a new position and kept it. Prosperity had come. The children showed it in their faces and in their attire. Much of this I learned from Miss Margaret, for, I am compelled to say, little Alice visited me no more. When I chanced to meet her, she always smiled and bowed with the winning grace of peculiarly hers. But the candor, the confidence, the confiding openness were gone. Had she lost faith in me, or was she ashamed? I could not answer the question. Elsie, too, kept out of my way. Meanwhile, Miss Margaret Dalton, a veritable angel of charity, was in close communication with the unfortunate family. Through her mediation, Mrs. Morrow, who had not been practicing her religion for several years, was persuaded to return to the sacraments. The poor little woman, like so many mothers, overburdened with the strain of keeping the children in bread and raiment, has simply lost sight of her own spiritual needs. Extreme poverty, no less than extreme wealth, causes the deflection of thousands from the church. Although Alice visited me no more, I had no reason to worry about her. The child was still leader in her class and through Sister Dorothy acting in my name, was supplied with such literature as I thought would best develop her imagination and her morals. Busy as I was with the multiplicity of affairs, I did nothing to re-establish with Alice our old relations. Of course, my self-love was hurt that the child should apparently think less of me, and the same self-love kept me blind to the cruelty of my words towards her. In fact, I practically forgot the language I had used, and the sentiments I had expressed. Alice did not forget. The school year passed away, vacation came, 
and in September classes were again resumed. Alice and Elsie were on hand for the opening day, and with them they brought their brother, Francis, aged seven, a pretty little fellow with flowing ringlets, for the wearing of which, through the thoughtful attention of his little classmates in the first grade, he did daily penance in the succeeding months. A little boy with curls must be of heroic stuff. "'Good morning, father,' said Alice. "'I hope you have had a pleasant vacation. This is my little brother Francis. Francis, shake hands with Father Carney.' In answer to which, Francis put his fingers in his mouth, and retreated to safe shelter behind his two sisters, from which coin of vantage he peeped out at me with large investigating eyes. "'Why, Francis,' remonstrated Alice, "'you are always talking about Father Carney, and you said you wanted to see him so bad.' "'I want to do home,' said Francis lugubriously. There was some candy on my desk. I picked up a piece and held it toward the disgruntled youth. His finger came out of his mouth with noticeable alacrity, and he stepped forward and took the candy with promptness. "'What do you say, Francis?' asked Alice, beaming. "'Thank you, sir.' "'Sir!' admonished Alice. "'Thank you, sir, father,' amended the little boy. And for many a day to come I was to Francis, sir, father. "'Well, Alice,' I inquired, "'how is everything going?' I could to a certain extent anticipate the answer. The two girls were nicely dressed, their color was good, their eyes shining. Both, notably Elsie, had grown taller. "'Father, we've had a delightful vacation. Papa's been working steadily, and he says he wouldn't be at all surprised if his ship did come in. For most of the vacation we were stopping with an uncle of mine at Morning View, Indiana, and we had just no end of fun. I learned how to milk cows.' "'And I,' said Elsie, "'learned to make hay.' And father, continued Alice, they had ever so many geese, and I used to go out barefoot with a long stick in my hand and play I was goose girl. Sometimes I'd play goose girl for days and days, and Elsie, who wore rompers, would play the fairy prince and come out and take me away. I married her thirteen times, said the accurate and solemn Elsie. And Francis was with us. He tried to teach the little chickens how to swim, didn't you, Francis? "'Yes, I did,' said the youth, who by this time was on my knee, not so much in token of his growing confidence in me as for the reason that it was a good strategic position for getting the candy, an advantage of which he was by no means slow to avail himself. Just then, Michael, in all the splendor of a dazzling tie and a new suit, stepped in to announce that there were some people in the outer office to see me. "'Why, Michael,' cried Alice, "'how do you do?' I'm able to take a little nourishment, thank you, and I sit up every day. You haven't been sick, have you? Not so as you could notice it. I thought so. You look very well, Michael, and very handsome. Now, what do you think of that? growled Michael. That's a beautiful tie you're wearing. It's cute. Michael's face was growing red fast. And your suit is just elegant. I never saw you look so nice before. "'Can you beat that?' ejaculated Michael, and incontentedly shut himself out. "'Well, Francis,' I said, as I stood that youth on his feet, and arose from my chair, "'do you still want to go home?' "'This place,' said Francis, "'is good enough for me.' "'He was a little bashful at first, explained Alice, "'but he's very fond of you. "'He's always talking about Father Carney, "'and every night he says, "'God bless Father Carney, don't you, Francis?' "'Yes, I do,' 
answered the youngster. I taught him myself, father, and oh, father, I'm going to try my best this year. I'll study, and I'll tell the truth, and so will Elsie, and I'm going to be a good little girl. You are too, aren't you, Elsie? Crossed my heart, came the earnest answer. Thank you, children, and as you are so good in praying for me, I am going to make it a point to remember you every day, especially at my Mass, as I have been doing the past eight or nine months. Oh, Father, cried Alice, coming up on her toes, have you really remembered me every day? Surely, my dear. After that, that lie? The bitterness, the scorn she put into that ugly monosyllable was dramatic. Forget that you ever told it, my child. I'll never, never forget it, vowed Alice, coming down on her heels with savage emphasis. And, Father, have you pardoned me? Long ago, Alice. Oh, cried Alice, her eyes shining and her face flushing red. I thought you couldn't, Father. I'm so happy. And so is Elsie. Aren't you, Elsie? I feel like a morning star, avowed Elsie. Pulling the two into line with herself, Alice executed her famous curtsy. Elsie bobbed, and Francis ducked his head. The ceremony had been evidently prearranged. And so the new school year, as it had begun, went on pleasantly for the Moros. Miss Margaret kept her eye on the home, and brought me most favorable reports. The loyal little wife had some justification for her assertion that no better husband, no better father could be found than Mr. Morrow, when sober. Between September and Christmas he was out of work but once, a period of unemployment lasting only for a week. At Christmas time, among other letters, I received the following. Dear Father Carney, once more the Merry Christmas bells are ringing, out their message of glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of good will. Once more we were reminded that Christ our Lord, the Savior, was born on Christmas Day. Dear Father, may nothing you dismay on Christmas Day or any other day in the whole year. You are a priest who takes the place of these angels, for you are singing the same song, the good tidings that the babe came down, to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Of course, dear father, you don't sing the good tidings, you talk them, and I don't think the angels would sing the good tidings either if they made a regular thing of it. On this day we feel good to all, but especially we feel good to all who have been especially kind to us. And, father, nobody knows how awfully good you've been to me. If I was dead and you came near me, I think I'd be able to say thank you. On Christmas Day I hope, dear father, that the infant Jesus would bring you everything you need and more. O oh, tidings of comfort and joy! Once more, a Merry Christmas, and I do so wish I had made my first communion, so as I could go for your intention. But I can pray, and I will pray for you, dear Father, who forgave me. Your loving child, Alice Morrow. There was a number of other letters like this one, only none quite so original, which stirred me strangely and humbled me. Who was I that so many innocent little hearts should think of me with love and pray for me with fervor? Poets have gone into ecstasies over the laughter of a little child. What is their laughter to their love? No poet has answered that question. It is beyond and above all poetry. And yet, to gain it, one needs but to be kind, sympathetic, and to show the little ones that maxima reverentia, that supreme reverence, which the poet justly says, is their due. And even if one fails now and then in kindness and in sympathy, there should never be failure in reverence. These little ones forget and forgive so easily, 
and kiss the hand that smites them. End of chapter 8 Recording by Maria Therese